0: strong and effective ruler history's view of a certain pharaoh would change over time it was a hot dusty day in early 1927 and Herbert Winlock was staring at a scene of brutal destruction that had been the hallmarks of a vicious personal attack signs of desecration were everywhere eyes had been gouged out heads lopped off, the cobra-like symbol of royalty hacked from foreheads. Winlock, head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art's archeological team in Egypt, had unearthed the pit in the great temple complex at Deir el-Bahri, D-E-I-R-E-L-B-A-H-R-I, Deir el-Bahri. Across the Nile from the ancient sites of Thebes, and Karnak in the pit were smashed statues of a Pharaoh pieces from the size of a, f- of a fingertip winlock noted to others weighing a ton and more the images had suffered almost every conceivable indignity he wrote as violators vented their spite on the Pharaoh's brilliantly chiseled smiling features to the ancient Egyptians pharaohs were gods what could what could this have done to warrant such blasphemy in the opinion of winlock and other egyptologists of his de- generation plenty the statues were those of the second confirmed female pharaoh in egyptian history she was she reigned for a longer time i believe for a longer time and she was more powerful than Cleopatra. The statues were those of Hatshepsut, H-A-T-S-H-E-P-S-U-T, Hatshepsut, that's how you pronounce her name, the sixth pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of Egypt, one of the few and by far the most successful woman to rule Egypt as pharaoh. Evidence of her remarkable reign circa 1479, to 1458 BC, did not begin to emerge until the 19th century, but by Winlock's day, historians had crafted the few known facts of her, life into a soap opera of deceit, lust, and revenge. Although her long rule had been a time of peace and prosperity, filled with magnificent art and a number of ambitious building projects. The greatest of which was her mortuary or memorial temper at Deir el Bakri. Hatshepsut's methods of acquiring and holding her onto power suggested a darker side to her reign and her character. The widowed queen of the pharaoh Tutmosis II, or Thutmose, I believe it's Thutmose, T H U T M O S E, Tutmos II, she had, according to custom, been made regent after his death in around 1479 B.C., to rule for her young stepson, Tutmosis III, until he came of age. Within a few years, however, she proclaimed herself pharaoh, thereby becoming, in the words of Whitlock's colleague at the Metropolitan Museum, William C. Hayes, the vilest type of usurper. Well, I don't know about that. Given the time, maybe the vilest type of usurper. But in the greatest of all pantheons and escapes of known Egyptology, not the most vile of usurper. In a later episode, I'll touch a little bit more on Cleopatra and what she did and her legacy. And a lot of people, and a lot of from what I've read, and a lot of what a lot of people know and a lot of people read, some people believe that because of who Cleopatra was, and some people believe that Cleopatra was not the true queen of Egypt. Cleopatra was, yes, as it's, as it's known and commonly known and commonly found and studied in all Egyptology, Cleopatra is called the last, pharaoh, the last pharaoh of Egypt or the last queen of Egypt. And a lot of history and a lot of Egyptology tells the story that, that Cleopatra was not the last queen of Egypt. She was not the last true, I'm sorry, she's not the last true queen of Egypt. A lot of people in a lot of history states that the last true queen of Egypt was Cleopatra's sister, Arsinoe, A-R-S-I-N-O-E, Arsinoe. And Arsinoe was younger than Cleopatra. But a lot of people have said in a lot of history, a lot of things that I've read, is that Cleopatra was far more scheming than Hatshepsut ever was, ever ever could have possibly have been and there's a far more intriguing and there's far more interesting sides to Arsinoe and Cleopatra's story which will be in a further later episode that is and it makes sense with how Cleopatra came in contact with Mark Antony and Julius Caesar so that kind of and with Rome involved that makes sense it kind of well it doesn't make sense it's kind of like you kind of get it but how the how the political posturing and manipulation with Rome in the background made sense but you can, you can when tune in for a later episode when they touch more on what happened to Cleopatra and happened to Arsinoe when how they don't know like I said in Egyptology we have yet to find and no one has found uh, Cleopatra's tomb no one knows where it is but we have found, we as a, when I say we, I mean we as a species, have found Arsinoe's tomb. We know where Arsinoe was buried, and we know where she was. Um, Arsinoe was a little bit, going off on a sidetrack here, and I'll get a little bit more of this when I touch on the episode, like I've been saying. Arsinoe was, Arsinoe's tomb is found, was found in Ephesus, E-P-H-E-S-U-S, in modern-day Turkey. And if you look up online to see Ars- um, Queen Arsinoe's tomb in Ephesus, you can see what the tomb looked like, and you can read more about what, how they found her, and, how they, and what, what that was like. Um, they all, there's, also, there's also a documentary called Cleopatra Killer Queen, and there's, it talks a lot about that and her... There's, and I'll get into it, like I said, in a future episode, but back to episode here. She proclaimed herself pharaoh, thereby becoming, in the words of Winlock's colleague, William C. Hayes, the vilest type of usurper. Disconcerting to some scholars, too, was her insistence on being portrayed as a male. Because in the time, the women couldn't ascend to the throne of being a pharaoh. They could ascend to being the queen of Egypt, but they couldn't ascend to the throne. And in order to ascend to the throne, you had to be a male. So a lot of times, if a woman wanted to ascend to the throne as pharaoh, they had to adopt the principles and the looks of a male. And a lot of times that involved in wearing the headdresses, and in Hatshepsut's case, and a lot of other female pharaohs' case, the false beard, and other things. So she had to, to ascend to the throne as pharaoh. She had to adopt the principles and being portrayed as a male. With bulging muscles and the traditionally pharaonic face, false beard, variously interpreted by interpreted, variously interpreted by those historians as an act of outrageous, outrageous desperation, an act of outrageous deception, deviant behavior, or both. Many early Egyptologists also concluded that Hatshepsut's chief minister, Senmut, S E, S E N E. Nmut Senmut must have been her lover as well. A co-conspirator in her climb to power, the so-called evil genius behind what they viewed as her devious politics. Upon Hatshepsut's death in around 1458 B.C., her stepson, then likely still in his early 20s, finally ascended to the throne. By that time, according to Hayes, Tutmosis III had developed a loathing for her chepsuit. Her name and her very memory, which practically beggar's description Beggar's description. The destruction of her monuments carried out with such apparent fury, was almost universally interpreted as an act of an act of long-awaited and bitter revenge on the part of Tutmosis III, who when wrote, Could scarcely wait to take 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 the vengeance on her dead that he had not dared in life. Of course, it made a wonderful story," says Rene Dreyfus, curator of ancient art and interpretation at the Fine Arts Museum in San Francisco. A lot of this again from my notes and this. Not saying refer to Wikipedia, refer to, this, refer to the Smithsonian, which is where this part of this is from, and refer to history.com. So, uh, and this is what, says Renee Dreyfus, and this is what we all read when we were growing up. But so much, was, so much of what was written about Hatshepsut, I think, had to do with who the archaeologists were, gentlemen scholars of a certain generation they were concerned with portraying Hatshepsut in a certain way according to that, that fit what they what they fit in their society and what they thought would be proper hatshepsut was born born hatshepsut was born at the dawn of a glorious age of of egyptian imperial power and prosperity rightly called the new kingdom her father tutmosis i was a charismatic leader of legendary military exploits Hatshepsut, scholars surmise, may have come into the world about, about the time of his coronation, probably around 14, 1504 BC, and so would still have been a toddler when he famously sailed home to Thebes with the naked body of a Nubian chieftain dangling from the prow of a ship, a warning to all who would threaten his empire. Hatshepsut seems to have idolized her father she would eventually have him reburied in the tomb she was to have she was having built for herself and would claim that soon after her birth he had named her successor to his throne an act that scholars feel would have been highly unlikely there have been only two possibly three female pharaohs in the previous 1500 years and each and each head is said to the throne only when there is no suitable male successor available. Cleopatra would rule some 14 centuries later. Normally, the pharaonic line passed from father to son. Preferably the son of the queen, but if and then they And the internet just jumped. Okay, I gotta keep up with this. See, oh, here's a little bit for my notes. The pharaonic line would pass from father to son, I just read that. Preferably the son of the queen, but if there was no such offspring, the son of one of the pharaoh's secondary or harem wives. Now back to the Smithsonian. In addition to Hatshepsut and another daughter who apparently died in childhood, it is believed that Tutmosis Thutmose I fathered two sons with Queen with Queen Ames a h m a h m e s Queen Ames both of whom predeceased him thus the son of a secondary wife M U T N O F R E T Mot Nofret, was crowned Tutmosis II in short order and probably to bolster the royal bloodlines of this harem claim of er, this harem claim and harem child young Tutmosis II was married to his half-sister Hatshepsut, making her queen of Egypt at about the age of 12. Historians have generally described Thutmose II as frail and ineffectual, just the sort of person a supposedly shrewish Hatshepsut could push around. Public monuments, however, depict a dutiful Hatshepsut standing appropriately behind her husband, but while she bore her husband a daughter, Neferure, N-E-F-E-R-U-R-E, I know how to pronounce that, it was Neferure, her only known child had Chepsut failed in the more important duty of producing a son, so when Tutmosis II died young, possibly still in his 20s, the throne went yet again to a harem child. Duly named Tutmosis III This child was destined to become one of the great warrior kings of Egypt, but at the time of his father's death, he was likely an infant, a hawk still in the nest, and deemed too young to rule. In such cases, when a when a royal blood, someone of a royal bloodline or certain someone of royal descent was destined or predetermined to ascend to the throne and they were too young to achieve the responsibility or to assume the responsibility the pharaoh or the current reigning pharaoh or the government wrong word choice but you get the point would appoint a regent to rule with the 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 child or to rule alongside the child in the child's place and a lot of times that was that was what happened to a lot of pharaohs And in this case that's what happened to a chep-suit. In such cases, it was accepted New Kingdom practice for a widowed queens to act as regents, handling the affairs of government until their sons, in this case stepson slash nephew, came of age. And Hatshepsut, more or less automatically it seems, got the assignment. I think it would have been pretty much the norm for Hatshepsut to step in, says Peter Dorman, an Egyptologist, who was president of the American University of Beirut. But it is also quite clear that Tutmosis III was recognized as a king from the very start. Monuments of the time show Tutmosis III still a child, but portrayed in the conventional manner as an adult king, performing his pharaonic duties while Hatshepsut, dressed as a queen, stands demurely off to the one side. For the seventh year of her regency, however and it may have been much earlier. The formerly slim, graceful queen appears as a full-blown flail and crook-wielding... Okay, okay, let me try this again because I'll go a little tang-tie there. The formerly slim, graceful queen appears as a full-blown flail and crook-wielding king with a broad bare chest of a man and a pharaonic false beard. But why? To Egyptologists... Of an earlier generation, Hatshepsut's elevation to godlike status was an act of naked ambition. It was not. It was not long, Hayes wrote, before this vain, ambitious, and scrupulous woman showed her true colors. But more recent scholarship suggests that a political crisis, such as a threat from a competing branch of the royal family, obliged Hatshepsut to become pharaoh. Far from stealing the throne, says Catherine Roerig, curator of the Egyptian art, curator of Egyptian art at the Metropolitan Museum of New, in New York City. Hatshepsut may have had to declare herself king to protect the kingship from her stepson. It's an interpretation that seems to so, seems to be supported by Hatshepsut's treatment of Thutmose III during her reign. He wasn't under house arrest for those twenty odd years. He was learning how to be a good soldier, and it's not as if Hatshepsut could have stepped down when her stepson came of age. Once you once you took the the attributes of a king, that was it. You were a god, and it's not queen for a day; it's king for a lifetime. Side note here, and a side note here a lot of things that you wouldn't know or that you don't know if you look at the the pyramids in Giza a lot of the way the pyramids are built is on the side i forget what side but on one of the sides of the pyramid there's a there's a tunnel i can't think of another word to say other than to say tunnel there's a tunnel that leads from the sarcophagus where the pharaoh is buried leads from the well buried where the pharaoh is entombed proper use there there's a a tunnel that leads from the sarcophagus the pharaoh's sarcophagus up through unimpeded up through straight out the side of the pyramid and it points up on a huge slope to the heavens and it was believed at the time when pharaohs were buried they the pyramids were constructed around them like that with that with that tunnel facing up It was believed that the Pharaoh's soul would ascend out of the pyramid through that tunnel directly up to heaven and it was believed that that's what the Pharaoh's soul would 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 do what they would want for the Pharaoh's soul because it was believed that in the walls the walls would impede the passage of the soul and the passage would the walls would block the soul from passing anywhere and a lot of times when Pharaoh's people of noble background as well, were buried, they were buried with things that that belonged to them or things that were important to them in life. So the pharaoh was often buried with gold and riches and things that were of high value that that were important to the pharaoh or that mattered to the pharaoh. So they were quite often buried with that stuff. And sometimes if if the pharaoh had a valuable, let's say if the pharaoh had a valuable pet, the pharaoh was often buried with that pet, and it was believed that the pet soul would do the same thing as the pharaoh's soul. The pet soul was just as godlike and just as revered as the pharaoh was, and the ph- pet soul would ascend to heaven with the pharaoh through that tunnel to, to heaven. So that's, that's, that's just really cool things about Egyptology and stuff that I remember, because I love Egyptology. Hatshepsut probably kn- knew her p- position was tenuous both by virtue of her sex and the unconventional way she gained the throne. And therefore appears to have done what can appears to have done what many leaders have often done in times of crisis. She reinvented herself. The most obvious form this took was having herself portrayed as a male pharaoh. As to why, no one really knows. But it is, but, but an Egyptologist believes in many believes It may have been motivated by the presence of a male co-roller. Makes sense. A circumstance with which no previous female roller had ever contended. She was not. She was not pretending to be a man. She was not cross-dressing, Kathleen Keller. Professor of Near Eastern Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Inscription, inscriptions on Hatshepsut statues, she, Kathleen Keller says, almost always contain some indication of her, of her true gender. A title, such as the daughter of Re, a feminine daughter of Re, R E. A feminine word and uh, feminine word endings resulting from sh- in such grammatical conundrums as his majesty herself now a lot of times well side note here a lot of times what you'll what you'll find out is that in Egyptology in Egyptian in Egyptian times of the time there are a lot of gods and one of the most famous God or the king God or one of the most famous gods was the god Ra Ra was the God Ra and he was the Sun God the God of the Sun and his name though, his name wasn't his full name wasn't Ra, that's just what he was commonly or commonly all the time called. He was called Amun Ra A M U N Amun Ra and he was a s like I said, he was a sun god. Hatshepsut also took a new name. Matkare, M-A-A-T-K-A-R-E. Sometimes translated to truth, Mat is the soul, Ka of the sun god Re, well, like I just said, the sun god was Ra, but the feminine form of Ra is Re. Re. So by calling it this, by calling by, by her referring to the sun god as Re, she's kind of identifying her true nature. She's kind of identifying to people she's a woman, and she's saying that. The key word here is Mot. The, the ancient Egyptian expression for order and justice as established by the gods. Maintaining and perpetuating Mat to ensure the prosperity and stability of the country required a legitimate pharaoh who could speak, as only pharaohs could, directly to the gods. By calling herself Matkare, Achepsu was likely reassuring her people that they had a legitimate ruler on the throne. One important way pharaohs affirmed Mot was by creating monuments, and Hatshepsut's building projects were among the most ambitious of any pharaohs. She began with the erection of two 100-foot-tall obelisks at the Great Temple Complex at Karnak, reliefs commemorating the event showing the obelisks, each weighing about 450 tons, being towed along the Nile by 27 ships manned by 850 oarsmen. Hatshepsut carried out her public works program across the empire, but it was concentrated in the area around Thebes, the dynastic and theological center of the Thutmosei dynasty, where she built a network of imposing processional roadways and sanctuaries. At Deir el she just across the Nile from Thebes, She erected her magnum opus, an immense memorial temple used for special religious rites connected to the cult that would guarantee Hatshepsut perpetual life after death. Dramatically it at the base of of towering limestone cliffs, the temple, which is regarded as one one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world, one of the ancient wonders, one of the, that's that's literally repetitive words there, one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world is approached through a series of terraced colonnades and courtyards that appear to ascend up the very side of the mountain. Despite the enormous scale of the complex, roughly the length of two and a half football fields, its overall impression is one of lightness and grace. Unlike the fortress temples of her predecessors, the temple's lower levels, the temple's lower levels featured pools and gardens planted with fragrant trees. Super sized images, eh, images of Hatshepsut were everywhere. Some one hundred colossal statues of the female pharaoh as a, sphinx, as, a as a sphinx, that's the word, as a sphinx guarded the processional way. Planting the terraces were more images of the ruler, some more than 10 feet tall, in various devotional attitudes. Kneeling with offerings to the gods, striding into eternity or in the guise of Osiris, god of death and resurrection. Miraculously, in a number of these statues, some some reassembled, others still in fragmentary fragmentary state, survive. Most are massive, masculine, and meant to be seen from a distance. Hatshepsut's, Hatshepsut's temple also featured a series of reliefs marking the achievements of her reign, including a storied tra- trading expedition to the mysterious and distant land called Punt, P-U-N-T, like punt, but Punt, believed to be somewhere on the coast of the Red Sea, perhaps in current-day Eritrea. The release showed the Egyptians loading their boats loading their boats in Punt with an array of highly prized luxury goods, ebony, ivory, gold, exotic animals, and incense trees. Never reads an inscription were such things brought to any king since the world was. As a work of art or architecture and self-glorification at memorial, was an enormous enterprise that must have involved an army of workers. It's almost certain scholars agree that Senmut, an official overseer of the works at Deir al-Bahri, was the mastermind behind, if not the actual architect, of the temple. He had most likely begun his climb to power during the reign of Tutmosis II, when he was appointed tutor to the. Hit when he was appointed tutor to Hatshepsut's daughter, Neferure. but his influence soared when with Hatshepsut's descendants throne. In time, he acquired some ninety-three titles, the most prestigious of which was Great Steward of Amun, the God of Thebes, which put him in charge of all Karnak's building and business activities. Many of Senemut's monuments to himself mentioned his ex- exceptional access to the throne, but he wasn't but he was a tr- but he was a true but he was a true tr- confidant of the Pharaoh and one and lost my place and the one upon whose utterances his lord relied. But other scholars believe that Senemut was the real force behind Hatshepsut's rule. Not even a woman with the most virile character could have attained such a pinnacle of success without masculine support, wrote historian Alan Gardner, historian Alan Gardner in 1961. Has now become largely discounted by experts as a woeful underestimate of Hatshepsut That's just an underestimation of any woman, not just of Hatshepsut herself, but of any woman. That she, couldn't, that she couldn't have achieved the power that she has without the help of a man. Are you kidding me? Really? There has there is not a woman on this earth who can't do a job as good as a man if not better. I'm betting most of the I'm betting most of the most of the women who have ever run for political office could either do the job as best as a man could do it and probably do it better. There have been situations that I've seen countless, even in this country, that I've seen all over the place, where the woman could do a job better than a man could. So the fact that it's something anyone could assume that a woman couldn't achieve the power that she has achieved without the help of a man is total bullcrap. It's total garbage. The woman could probably do it better than he could. That's just the history of the time that they were afraid to say that, that they didn't want to say that. Did Hatshepsut and Senamut share more than power? Probably not. Most scholars, including Peter Dorman, have concluded. Dorman does believe, however, that the pharaoh and her favorite minister may have been victims of speculation and gossip. Senemud's fate is a mystery. His privileged position allowed him to build a splendid tomb for himself near Hatshepsut which is in the Valley of the Kings, just west of Deir al-Bahri, but he apparently never occupied it. The tomb suffered major damage, including the smashing of his impressive, if unused, stone sarcophagus. It was long thought that that either Hatshepsut or Thutmose III were the culprits, but recent scholarship suggests some combination of religious upheaval, tomb robbers, and natural collapse. Hatshepsut's own tomb was cut into the base of the cliff on the east side of the Valley of the Kings, and was large enough to accommodate both her sarcophagus and that of her father. Reburying him in her tomb was yet another attempt to legitimize her rule. It is believed that Hatshepsut died, probably in her late 40s, around 1458 BC, the year that Tutmosis III first used the title ruler of Mot. Tutmosis III's destruction of Hatshepsut's monuments has long been recognized as a conscientious and very successful, and very nearly successful, attempt to obliterate her name and memory from history, which has completely failed because everyone now knows who Hatshepsut was, and everyone knows her story and the legacy that she led and left behind. But it was, as many early Egyptologists had assumed, an act of revenge and hatred. In recent decades, scholars have re-examined the archaeological evidence and come to the startling conclusion that the destruction, presumed to have been initiated soon after Hatshepsut's death, was actually not begun until some 20 years later, toward the end of Tutmosis III's own long reign. I think that people recognize now, because it happened so late in Tutmosis III's reign, there was pur- that it wasn't personal animosity, says Dorman of the Rampage. For some reason, Tutmosis III must have decided it was necessary to essentially rewrite the official record of Hatshepsut's kingship, which meant eradicating the traces of it to suggest that the throne had gone directly from his father to him. While numerous theories abound, most contemporary Egyptologists agree that the efforts to delete Hatshepsut's rule had something to do with Thutmose III's concerns about the succession of power after his death. Was there some threat to the legitimacy of his own son, Amenhotep II, who in fact did succeed him? Possibly. But Dorman believes that Hatshepsut's unconventional reign may have been too successful. A dangerous precedent best erased, he suggests, to prevent the possibility of another powerful female ever inserting herself into the long line of Egyptian male kings. The story of Hatshepsut will probably never be complete. She is like an iceberg. On the surface, we know quite a lot about her, where there's so much we don't know. Even so, New light continues to shine on the queen, who would become king. In 2007, Egyptologist Zahi Hawass identified a previously, previously excavated royal mummy as Hatshepsut. Catherine Rolreg is among the scholars awaiting more evidence to bolster the claim. The fact that the mummy is female was, and was found in the Valley of Kings was found in the Valley of the Kings, is about the right age to make this identif- identification quite possible, she says. The evidence is not conclusive. Further studies are in progress. One, some, another, I don't see the first name here. Tildesley believes that Hatshepsut may have been keenly conscious of her exceptional place in history. This is just speculation, she says but I think that she was almost aware that she might have almost aware that she might be forgotten or that her actions would be misunderstood toward the end of her reign Hatshepsut erected a second pair of obelisks obelisks at Karnak on one of the on one of the on one the inscription reads now my heart turns this way and that as I think what the people will say those who shall see me monuments in the year, those who shall see my monuments in the years to come, and who shall speak of what I have done. That's in Hatshepsut's own words. It's very interesting. All this stuff is very interesting. Her especially, and what she did, and there was there wasn't other than many of the like the petroglyphs and her carvings on the wall. There isn't much story back then as to what her rule was like and what her story was and who she was and the great things in Egyptology, like I said, which is extremely interesting to me is what that the women can rule as good, if not better, probably better than most men and Hatshepsut was proof of that. Now, earlier, as I mentioned in the podcast, I don't know in the pot, in this episode, I don't know that Cleopatra was evidence of that but situations have proven that women can just be as great rulers, conceiving conceiving, well that too conniving and manipulative as men can they're the exact same thing as men and ruler and a lot of them are better so, thank you and tune tune in everyone for more trips down the more trips to Alexandria and Thebes and trips back into Egyptology history because this is extremely interesting to me. This is a love, love, love relationship I have with Egyptology. It's great. It's awesome. So thank you all for listening and hanging in there with me and stay tuned for a little bit more. Hey, guys. Check out the best cruising podcast and YouTube channel for everything cruising needed, everything cruise, cruising enjoyed, everything you love about cruising. They're experts, they know their stuff, and they're beyond awesome. You'll love the podcast, you'll love their YouTube channel. They're the best cruising podcast out there. Check out Fantastic Cruising on the podcast, on your favorite podcast devices and favorite podcast programs. And also check out Fantastic Studios on YouTube. They are beyond great. Give and Matt and Kimbra follow. Give them a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and every other podcast you choose. They are beyond awesome, and you won't be disappointed. You won't be upset in any way, shape, or form. Please join me in supporting and giving to the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project. When you donate to the Pride Foundation, you join thousands of supporters building a better, safer, more equitable world for LGBTQIA plus people and their families. Every gift, whether $1 or $1,000, makes an impact for real people and ripples outward into our communities. There are many different ways to join and help the fight. Also go on to their websites for the Pride Foundation and the Trevor Project and donate and help in any way possible. The Trevor Project offers support and help for LGBTQIA youth all over the country and all over the world. Please show them some love and give them some support.